לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet in Highland Park, New Jersey at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shem. And joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Shekhar Day School, Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski of Anshay Chesed in New York City. It's great to see you. We have this amazing Parsha. We are now talking about Parsha Truma, Truma, and it feels, it seems, that we're really entering a new phase here. Okay, let's just give our, our viewers and listeners the context that they remember correctly, right? Last week, the people got the Book of the Covenant. There was a big covenant ceremony. There was some blood splatter on them. Prior to that, they said, Na'asev Ishma, we will do and we will hear, which we interpreted. And now, at the end of last week, God said to Moses, Ale Eli Hahara V'yesham, Come up to me in the mountain, be there, and God is going to give him the Torah of it. I'm going to give you the stones, the tablets of stone, the Torah and the law, the commandment. So very interesting. These stones are actual things that God wrote on. And we get the beautiful scene. The, the cloud comes over the mountain, and Moses stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. And it seems... That while he's there, he gets the following commandments, which start off like this. Speak to the children of Israel. And you shall take for me an offering. From every person who is so moved, you'll take my offering. And it goes on to list all the different objects of the of, of, of uh, wealth, of uh, precious value, things that are going to become part of the sanctuary. The capstone verse, uh, You shall make, they shall make for me a sanctuary, and I shall dwell among them. So a reader and all of us are asking, well, what's going on here? What, what, what do you think is happening here? And why is this structure being instructed for us why do they need a structure what does it what role does it play and why is God saying that they should have it so I mean it's a big topic big set of questions I I, I guess uh, Barry you want to just tell me what's going I mean what's going on you're the teacher here we're the rabbis what's going on here and by the way Barry we are literally sitting in your classroom right that's like your your board yes. behind you is the last class I was in today so we are sitting. We are sitting in your classroom. Teach us, And of course, we'll 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 disagree with you. <laughs> well, I, you should disagree with me, but I have to say something first. Go ahead. And what I would say, so we've talked about this before. I think Ramban is the one who emphasizes how the image of Sinai that we get in chapters nineteen and twenty is a kind of template for the Mishkan, which is going to start now in chapter 25. 
the unfolding of the architecture and the furniture of the Mishkan. And it's as if Moses is told to take Mount Sinai, which is vertical, obviously, and lay it out flat. And we're going to make a building in that imprint. We're going to take Sinai with us to the best that we can. And I think, you know, listening to you talk, one of the things that I find fascinating is the number of times that Moses is told, this is what I showed you. So, you know, while he's up on Mount Sinai, we're used to thinking of Moses getting the Torah, but actually it seems that God has taken out his picture book and is showing Moses what he has to do on earth. And I think that in a way that is strikingly literal and physical, Moses is going to construct on earth a heavenly temple. And it's going to require the best that the people have within them, which is what the truma is going to be. And they're going to come forth, as we'll find out in the subsequent Parsha, with more stuff than they actually need. Right. Because you need that in order to bring God into the world. You, God is not a minimalist. He's a maximalist. He wants everything that you have, not just the bare minimum. Jeremy, what do you think is going on here? What, I mean, or, or just respond or, or come in anyway. Well, first of all, I, I love the, uh, you know, Barry, Barry referenced the Ramban, and I loved the con, the concept of the heavenly temple and the earthly temple. There's a Midrashic trope that there's a Beit Mikdash Shamala, Mechuban, Kinega Beit Mikdash Shamala, Jamata. There's, as it were, a supernal temple and an earthly temple, and they, they align somehow in what goes on the bottom. Uh, effects and, and corresponds to what goes on at the top. And that's a, an excellent sort of mythic and mystical reading of the kind which Nachmanides is, that's his wheelhouse. Um, and there's another reading which Ramban is disagreeing with, which it appears in Rashi, which is that this, the story here of this Parsha is related out of order. That the, uh, that the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32, 33, 34, actually is what happens next uh, Moses up on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights. And then he delays, you know, drags his feet coming down and, and dawdles. People get anxious. They make the golden calf. And then after that huge, you know, catastrophe, uh, then God says, essentially, um, I have to do something for these people, um, either to indicate that I'm not still mad, or I think a little bit, more richly, um, I understand in a way that I didn't understand before that the people need something visual, something physical, someplace to go. And so I'm going to interpret the Rashi as saying um, that they need a place to go uh, because either they're not ready or maybe homo sapiens are never ready to be purely abstract. They need, they need some physical, visual, cooperative, you know, in wood and st stone and gold and silver and and the, you know, the purple and the, and the, and the, the blue and the red and everything. He needs something physical. Now, of course, this is like really interesting because this is a religion that is very suspicious of visual stuff. Um, and so in my own, my own heart is more drawn to the Nachmanides uh, uh, reading that, 
it was always a plan to try to bring heaven to earth and to have a place where people can dedicate themselves to, to communion with God. But I think the other reading is pretty interesting too, right? That that, that kind of need is like something that God has to respond to in a way that wasn't ideal in the first iteration, that, that God had to, to do it after they screwed up with the golden calf, give them the, the better version of something visual. So if I understand what you're saying, then, and, and this is the, the Rashi position, and it's held by, by many in the tradition that, that we're, we're, reading, we're reading the story, we're reading the, the, the text a little out of order, that the, the Mishkan, the sanctuary, comes as a, a kind of antidote or a safety for uh, the the tendency to idolatry. Okay, but but I want to put on the like. So I'm I'm I. This is the let's let's pretend this is the first time I'm reading the Torah. Okay, and and I'm an intelligent person, and the first time I'm reading the Torah, I don't know any Russian or anything, and I've I, I'm 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 I have so much suspense, so much suspense with Moses up on the mountain. He's there for forty days, and I'm getting this uh, this um, uh, this presentation. Of what is essentially a structure, and I'm, I'm an intelligent person. I know ah structure, structure. Uh, I have experience with a structure. Uh, I live in a structure. I live uh, and I worship in a structure. Uh, and so uh, perhaps the structure is to convey a narrative to me. After all, there is a visual and experiential. There's an architectural dialogue that takes place as uh, anybody comes into your building, anybody comes into your home. So, you know, Jeremy, I, I've been to your shul, you've been to my shul, right? And, and uh, we, you know, it's a, it's a place of grandeur. I mean, I can't explain it any other way. I mean, you're under construction now, but it's a beautiful, beautiful building. A person walks into your building and gets the experience of, well, I'll tell you what my experience was. It's, you know, here are Jews, maybe what 100 years ago 90 years ago you know on the upper west side building a building you know putting together their resources trying to express in in a tangible way their 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 most cherished values of building community and worshiping god and creating something of awe and splendor so it's a gorgeous play i don't know you're you know what's 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 the narrative yeah 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 i mean uh it's interesting to think about because it's almost exactly, the building was built in 27, 28. Um, so it's almost exactly a hundred years old, well, not 90 plus years old. And, and, you know, it's interesting to think about because there is a narrative about community and spirituality It's probably a narrative of what it meant to be a very bougie Jewish community on West End Avenue and in, in 1928 and, and their own sense of success. Um, you also, you know, you, you, you also tell a story by how you sit intimate, you know, all frontal in a circle. Absolutely. Uh, all, Absolutely. all these things. And, and I think that the, uh, at least one way to read the Mishkan is that it's like, first of all, it is, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on from, from the, the narrative. It's somewhat imprecise, you know, uh, got a lot of details but you don't know exactly what things looked like um but it seems dazzling uh, the thing that i'm always drawn to is the all the woven fabrics of of you know uh, linen which is kind of off-white always going to be kind of off-white and then the yarns which are um crimson and 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 purple and blue with gold mixed in i just think it's it's got to have been spectacular um 
uh, and I think that there was like I kind of imagining that in a world that was probably not so aesthetically rich, this place was just like mind-blowingly beautiful, right? The very best of human artistry and creativity was concentrated in this one spot. They probably were out of the world and they, you know, it, it probably didn't smell very good and they had the goats and, and wow. it was dusty and uh, they go in here and it's incense and it's light and it's precious metals and, and beautifully woven threads. And it maybe just persuaded them there is beauty in the world. Okay, but but maybe there is a narrative. Maybe there's another narrative, and, and I'll I'll put this out to you, which is you know you alluded to it with Ramban the Nachmanides saying, and and scholar you know biblical scholarship kind of corroborates this that that the the Mishkan is a representation of Mount Sinai that that just as Mount Sinai had different zones, the top of the of Mount Sinai where Moses encountered God, the the hill. You know the 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 lead up where this Canaan were and the, the the foot of Mount Sinai, which is where the people of so too the Mishkan has really it's composed of these different zones: the outer court where everybody could go, the inner court where just the Kohanim could go, and the Holy of Holies where the Kohen Gadol could go only once a year. And so there is a narrative here that that someone you know the average Israelite it would be obvious to them that this is their their traveling Sinai. Okay, and that the traveling Sinai has as its core narrative the covenant. So the Mishkan then is the symbol of the covenant in space. Barry, you're... Yeah, it's worth recalling that Mount Sinai, you get to God by going up. In the Mishkan, you get to God by going in. Two very different experiences. experiences, yes. And the question is, are they parallel in any way? Are they comparable experiences? Can you really go up by going in? Can you reach God through, which is the, the statement that the Mishkan makes, that you can enter into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, on Yom Kippur, if you're fortunate enough to be the high priest, and either see God or create smoke that will obscure God, but penetrate to God's presence, which right. is very different than climbing up a mountain, which by definition is a transcendent experience. You're over and above everything on one hand, and in the Mishkan, you're embraced or em by the inside. So in this reading then, I, I, would, I, I would go go on the on this avenue in terms of the biblical theology. Sinai is a once event. It's a, it's a it's there is no other event like Sinai. Okay, that that anything any other revelation that takes place, any other conversation that takes place, you know, between God and Moses in the desert, and any other conversation that takes place between God and any prophet throughout the prophetic period, it's it's just it's not Sinai, and that. So, but what makes it not Sinai? What it, that it's not Sinai. Sinai is uh, one place, one time, one, one, one moment. It's like it's not. It's not coming back. There's no. We are. We are. We are aspiring to it. We, you know, the theology that we have as rabbinic Jews is that we we want to listen to the voice from Sinai, but there's never going to be another Sinai. Just like there's never going to be another. I don't know. Gretzky. But I think that's because we misunderstand Sinai. <laughs> no, 
I think this is the total understanding of science. Well, I, I think here we have to agree that you're simply wrong, Elliot. But <laughs> this is what I want to say, and this is what I want you to react to, is that what makes Sinai the Sinai experience is that it's God talking to the entire people at once. That is what will never be replaced. Okay. But God does speak to individuals, and he's in constant communication with Moshe um, in the wilderness, except for the 38 years when he doesn't talk. Um, and that part, I don't think rabbinic Judaism deals with. It doesn't attempt to bring us back to a national colloquy with God. It suggests that we reach God on our own and with small communities. Exactly. Well, I, I would say, first of all, it's really, that's incredibly vivid that you said that. First of all, there's one, there was one case where literally someone goes back to Sinai, and that's Elijah, right. who goes back to Chorev to have a solitary revelation. And, um, and that's one that is very elusive because God is not in the earthquake, the wind, or the fire, but in the, in the voice of silence. And, and Elijah picks up on that, which is by definition not only not, not communal, individual and not communal, it's also not full of, you know, laws and, and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, rabbinic Judaism is, in a sense, like Chacham Adif Minavi, you know, a sage is better than a prophet. Prophets are erratic. They're kind of weird. You don't necessarily trust them. You don't know how to evaluate. You know, any any old person can say, God told me this, and how do we know which ones to follow? And um, rabbinic Judaism doesn't like that. Rabbinic Judaism, you know, one of its most famous stories is, is Loba Shamayim. He, this is social. This is communal. This is for us in the Beit Midrash. And, and, you know, you don't get to introduce because God said so in, into the course of uh, your discussion. Um, but interestingly, as you said about, you know, how do we get the Zohar's, one of the Zohar's favorite lines is, and nobody learned this Torah since, you know, they'll tell some mystical, some mystical teaching. Nobody has learned this Torah. It's revealed as nothing has been revealed since the day that Moses was at Sinai. So it's like all of these, you know, mystical revelations are correlated to being like, you know, here into Spain in the 13th century, uh, a, a, an eruption of the Sinai spirit. Absolutely. Sinai is the big bang of, of, of Jewish, of theology. It's, it's never going to happen again. It's, it's, and we're, we're only trying to hear the echoes of it. We're only trying to, you know, hear, I mean, and what Elijah is doing there as an individual is trying to find that and touch that and, and, and come close to it, and he can't. He, he doesn't have, he's, he's the most powerful radio telescope that exists, and all he hears is a small voice. And, and the rabbis, I think we, we have to give them a lot of credit. Their, their revolution here is to, to, to amplify the words and to create the, the, um, the hermeneutical techniques for... I want to suggest something else. Go ahead. I think, you know, I was struck, Jeremy, when you said Chacham Adif Miyabi. Only a Chacham can say that, by the way. <laughs> well, Jeremy is a Chacham. So, the Chacham represents stability. And the metaphor that we would use, that we are talking about before we started recording, is the Beta Mikdash. The Prophet represents the Mishkan, which is not, has no foundation, because it has to be carried. It's portable. And there's this great tension 
And you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about halakha and revelation and this drive to codify everything into halakha is emblematic, I think, of the Beit HaMikdash and a kind of rejection of the image of the Mishkan as a meaningful symbol for our religion. And we can't really go back to the Bible in that sense. And maybe we need to look for avenues to do that. I need a little bit more. We need a little bit more. You know, too much maximal stability dries it all out, right? Yeah. Too much, too much keva, too much keva, and and it's all boring. Too much kavana, and it's all irrational. Those terms for too me. much fixed form. It, it's just it dries out all the all the life, all the all the fun and energy. But but if it's all just kavana, then it'll never turn into anything. Okay. So, so what you're reflecting on is that there there there's a kind of paradox there. I mean, you know, we 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 want. A, a, a space. We, I mean, I'm thinking now in the modern context. You know, we have a community. I'm rabbi. You're rabbi. Rabbis. You know, and and we we enjoy the experience of space. That is to say, worshiping in a space, and and we need that. You know, and yet there's the paradox of that is well, God is not only in the space, and yet God is part of the space. I mean, it's that that paradox is reflected in the verse, you, they shall make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. And and that, I think, you know, bleeds over into other paradoxes, which is, can you have a fixed place or do you have a mobile place? Do you have a centralized place? Do you have a place around? I mean, you know, all of these things are are, are playing themselves out here in this text and then, of course, you know, historically, it's destroyed. And so they have no place, and they have to invent places. I mean, I've said a lot here, but react anywhere you want to react on those, any of those paradoxes or any of those um, themes here. Go ahead, Barry. So as long as you put it the way that you did, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is what really was the greater tragedy, the destruction of the first temple or the second temple. You know, what we call Judaism really is, in some sense, is a reaction to the destruction of the first temple. You know, the scholars that I've been reading the last several years locate the beginnings of Judaism in the Persian period and the Persian period being the paradigm for almost everything that comes afterwards. That if you want to understand Judaism, you have to understand what was going on in the Persian period from Speaking the building of, of the second temple okay. until the advent of the Greeks. So just the, put that in the, the timeline for us. It's 586 BCE is the destruction of the first temple. The Persian period is? Takes a generation later. Say okay. 538 is when Jews are allowed to come back to the land of Israel. The second temple was built, say, around 516. For those who like neat numbers, 70 years after the destruction coincides with the prophecy of Jeremiah. And then the Hellenistic, whatever you want to call it, happening, um, 323 is the death of Alexander. And that's when the Seleucids and the Ptolemies take, take over the land that we're interested in. Um, and, you know, what would, what really was First Temple Judaism, or, not Judaism, first temple Israelite religion. What of that actually survives and becomes part of 
what we call Second Temple Judaism. That's that's uh, first of all, thank you for a spectacular uh, historical rundown. Some of that stuff I didn't know, but I'll tell you, there's one thing. There's one thing of First Temple Judaism that survives strongly, um, and that is, I mean, the texts presumably receive the final editing after the destruction, but most of the prophets, you know, the the source texts of the Tanakh a lot of them are first temple texts. So it's true, we don't do that stuff, but the stuff that we do is, is later, um, but a whole lot of the stuff as described in the, the Chumash and in, in the first section of Isaiah and in Jeremiah and Micha and Amos and Hosea and all those folks and lots of Tehillim are first temple texts. Including, I, I guess, a, a huge chunk of the book of Psalms which, which probably was the liturgy of, of the first temple, or, you know, as, as opposed to, you know, probably the four-fifths, the first four-fifths of the book of Psalms, right? Or, okay, so, so we can see how, how complicated, I mean, we're, you know, I, think, I think what's, what's so um, riveting about this partially, even though the, there's no narrative here, is that it really causes us to have these questions, the questions of, you know what does what does a place mean, and what's going on in this place, and what what does a what does the the average Israelite hope to accomplish when coming into that place, and and how is that uh, experience different from let's say the worshiper now who comes into the place? I, you know, I would say the the main narrative of coming into any of our synagogues is. I want to be with the. Sh- I want to be with my my community. I want to be with my community. I don't want to hear. You know, I want to hear a nice chazan. I want to hear a decent sermon. I want to eat a nice kiddush. Maybe it's. I want to eat a nice kiddush. I don't know. What do you? You know. But the narrative. How nice the kiddush is. Well, it depends, right? During normal times, that would be a big big draw for people. But to you know, for a worshiper to come to the sanctuary, it's I want. I want to express some gratitude. I want to get some atonement. I want to be forgiven. I want to. I want to make amends. Right? It's, it... a, it's of course extremely hard for us, you know, to uh, to you know the Bible presents a, a picture of religion, and we they don't tell us what Joe Israelite thought. Uh, presumably, the people who who actually composed the texts were the most skilled writers, the most educated people. They, they were the elite class for sure. And Joe Israelite, it's hard for us to guess. You know, Kodshim Kalim, the, the, the Shlamim sacrifices, the, the Nidavot, the, the Todot, all those kinds of sacrifices, free will offerings by people, that was the equivalent of Edenized Kiddush, presumably. They had a, they had a good Kiddush. Um, they did definitely, I think, I would hope that. I think Parshat Truma indicates everybody whose heart moves them to contribute. And as, as you said, as the, as the rest of the Exodus will say, they brought even more than they needed. It was just great generosity. I would bet that they had a feeling of tremendous you know, fellowship and accomplishment in mutuality. But I also think there's one other thing, which is one of, to my way of thinking, one of the biggest differences of biblical religion and today's religion is that I think that a... Um, the, the, the focus on ritual purity for ancient people, the focus on the temple not being a place of contact with death or decay, but being a place of life, 
that in the whole world, when people with lots of sickness and lots of, you know, physical deformity and all kinds of human suffering was out there in the world in the Mishkan, and then later the Beit HaMikdash, would be places of ritual purity and cleanness and beauty and order. And I think that that I'm imagining based on the Bible's descriptions and the rabbi's understandings that going to the going to the sacred places that everybody could share in, that everybody cared about, it was a place where, yes, this is where the world makes sense, is safe, is, is full of life. And nowadays, I think that one of the things that the people want when they come into religious space is a little bit of that, you know, here we are together in our brokenness. Everybody brings, nothing is as whole as the broken heart. And everybody, you know, that people really don't like that. The Kohanim have to be physically unblemished and the animals have to be unblemished. What? Come on, who's unblemished? As the rabbis say in the Midrash, you know, God uses only broken vessels. Here we are, we're all broken vessels. I think people nowadays, that narrative is, we love you where you are, who you are. And I think the Bible is, we love you at your perfection. That's fascinating. I think we, we could talk a lot about that. I think, I think you know, there, there another, another valence to this is we come not to be in the world. We come to be, to, to kind of turn off the world. The world is full of noise. The world is, the world is full of, of ugliness. The world is filled with, with, with a lot of despair. And, and, and we come into the sanctuary to find, to, to leave some of that outside, especially on Shabbat. I'm thinking, you know, as, as we're, as we're recording this, there's a big demonstration in Ottawa right now for our Canadian viewers, right? So Ottawa, the, the city is clogged up with a bunch of truckers. They're, they're beating their horn. They're blaring their horns in the middle of the night. You know, and, and where do you go for sanctuary when the world is going crazy, right? So, yeah, that's, you know, that's part of the narrative. In addition to, to what you, I mean, it means so much, so many different things to, to everybody, you know. And, and so I, I'm saying that, that the Mishkan represents a narrative, the space represents a narrative, and it represents covenant in, in, in space, uh, but it represents all of these different aspirations. Barry, I don't know if you have a, a kind of, no. No, I'm very struck by the conversation. <laughs> it was just like I was enjoying listening. Okay, so I, I, I mean, we, we didn't really go through the, the items, but the, this the, we have two minutes left. Okay, so the the central item of the sanctuary is going to be the aron. The aron. So so v'natata el haaron et haidut asher eten elecha. That the the aron is supposed to be the receptacle for the testimony, which again, brings on the idea of the Mishkan's narrative, that, that in the center of the Mishkan, the holiest area of the Mishkan is going to be occupied by this holy box covered in cold, which contains the tablets, okay, so that you do not see that, but you are aware of that. You know, you, you bring your little Israelite child and say, uh, and the child says, what's in there, Abba? And uh, uh, you say, in that structure there, way, 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 way there, in the center where you cannot ever go, that's where the tablets are, or they were, or they weren't. But Barry, you have something to reflect on, on that the box is actually empty, or the box was supposed to So Buber has this, what he calls the great paradox of the Bible, is that he understands the ark as being empty. And so you have a box, which is made of wood, that has borders, but it actually contains nothing. And that's what represents God. So God is at once everything and nothing all at once. Because without the box, there's, no, there's nothing contained. 
but the box itself contains nothing. And when I first came across this many years ago, I thought it was such a beautiful understanding of how God could be both in the world and outside of it. It doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. I, 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 want, I want the stones to be in the box. I want the tower. I, I, I'm so you know, driven by this idea of covenant and that the covenant is represented by the tablets. And, and they're, they're not big tablets. They're, you know, they probably look like, like you know, floor tiles or something, being, you know, 12 by 12. You know, for, but they're they're in the box, and I, I I don't think that the tablet number one is commandment one to five, and com- tablet number two is commandment six to ten. I think that that there are two copies of of all ten, and that one's God's copy and one's the 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 Jewish people's copy, and that they they reside in the same safety deposit box there, and that that has such a compelling meaning if before it despite the fact that it all gets destroyed the tablets you know are are gone by this time in the second temple even the ark is gone there's no there's nothing in the there's nothing in the holy of holies during the second temple that i think is you know what when the romans came to destroy the temple they went into the holy of holies they got they saw nothing that's the midrash right that's uh well i mean obviously lots of midrashim uh including some very daring ones i mean these are daring you know there's that that the that the box with the kruvim on top, with the wings of the kruvim are like a throne for the invisible God. It's like a chair. So the, the the cherubs and their wings form a kind of a chair for the invisible God. Maybe with the invisible books, uh, stone stone books inside them. Um, I mean, this is like incredibly poetically rich and um, just. Stirring. I mean, I'll throw in another. Yes, this is no doubt the most important thing. It's the first commandment of all the accoutrements, and it's the last one related when they, the first, it's the first commandment in um, Truma of what you should do, but it's the last thing when they actually do it in Vayakhel Pekudeh. It's the last one that gets gets inserted. Um, so it is the climax. I also, you got to love the menorah. Gotta you got to love this, this luminous, there's so much in Judaism that is the flaming tree. There's the burning bush, this luminous bush. There's the menorah, which is which is portrayed as being like, um, you know, in Zechariah, the, the haftarah for Hanukkah, it's also the haftarah for Behalotecha, is like, is like the, the olive trees just flow into the tree that is the menorah. And, um, and it's, you know, portrayed as having, you know, Kaftor Vaferach, like the, the little balls and the flower, the little balls and the flowers, like a tree, and it's all lit up. And that to me is also just a tremendously poetic description of what a sacred place brings to its worshipers. It lights up the darkness. It's a it's a bush that's not consumed. Exactly. God coming into the world and and being and sustaining in in the world without without destroying the world. It's the nuclear reactor. It's everything. Okay. Well, you can see that we're going to go. We can go into into lofty heights uh, with the with the tremendous array of symbols in our Mishkan, uh, and that I think is what what reading the text uh, does for us. It 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 really ignites this imaginative uh, journey. What was this? What did it mean? Who is it? What did they experience there? And that's some of the things that we just tried to share with you. We want to thank you for being with us. As always, it's great to have you. It's great to get your comments. Uh, We love sharing Torah with you. Please write to us, parshatalk at gmail.com or comment on any of our YouTube or Facebook places. We appreciate every single one of your comments. 
and every one of our readers, viewers, listeners, we love having you. It's great to share it with you. And we're going to see you next week in another edition of Marsha Talk. Thanks for joining us.